it's so great to have you all with us on this uh, chilly, it's getting cold in Washington, D.C. I was just complaining. It feels cold in my house. I don't know where you're coming from. My husband is coming from Florida. He said, can you hear the beach, that sound of the ocean, honey? I guess you had the door open a minute ago. That's where his alma mater is, uh, Embry-Riddle. He's there for some events um, this weekend. So, uh, uh, but I, I still think we did it last week, teaching from two different parts of the country. So we're going to try it again tonight. Are you ready, honey? Yes. <laughs> good, good, good. You're looking, you're looking good tonight. Well, welcome everyone to our 5,000 yearly class where we're um, studying over the course of 12 weeks, these beautiful 28 ideas, these principles of, uh, of freedom and liberty that our founders used to establish this first free people in modern times where they structured the government with all power in the voice of the people. You know, I love that we are, since COVID, we've kind of gotten used to this coming together and gathering online. For years, I attended study groups, cottage meetings in neighbor in the neighborhoods I lived in, and, and we studied the 5,000-year leap and the healing of America and the making of America in various books. And I saw how transformative it was to actually meet in person sometimes once a month, sometimes in some neighborhoods once a week for two hours. And we'd study these things. And as mothers, we'd come home and teach them to our spouses. We'd converse and to our children and how transformative it was. It changed the way we taught our children, didn't it, Al? It, it changed yes, our, our marriage. And I know uh, that that the Lord really will magnify your efforts to join here in the study group online. And you, Alan, are seeing the fruits of what we taught our children as they're adults now. And I think a lot of it goes back to us teaching these principles of um, godly law and of freedom and liberty and the miracles and stories of America. There really is something powerful about coming together and learning on a regular basis and then and then going back and showing up the people that you love. It really, you can see how this knowledge will help heal your home, your relationships and spill out into your communities and even the nation. Now I know as we sit here tonight, we're worried. We're, we're worried about the, the young people in our life, the, the children, our grandchildren. We maybe feel like they don't have a true appreciation and respect for these principles. Uh, we're worried about the influence on the school systems and the university and social media. We're worried about our nation. We're worried about the economy. We're worried about, goodness sakes, what's going on in the world as the Middle East is continuing to heat up and it looks like you know our country and various countries are are taking sides now but i do think there is something powerful about learning true history because you begin to see how god weaves his hand it helps us to become victorious and to overcome and we see the inspirational stories and, and it fills us with hope even when things look really bad and you know i think as we learn these things and learn these ideas it helps us to stay anchored in hope that's a phrase that we use a lot in moms for america and i was just reading today in my study of the word the bible in hebrews 6 it talks about how we're all promises to uh, we're heirs to god's promises and that he will not lie. He, he has made oaths to come through on what he has said. And we need to let this hope sink within us. Let this hope 
have an anchor to our souls. And I'm like, all right, anchor of hope is even in the scripture. I think it was in the scripture before it was with Moms for America. But as we turn to the word and to God, it will be an anchor at the time when the world kind of seems like it's rocking and rolling. So as we learn these, I call them brilliant principles, we'll see that history and experience has proven these principles work because in under 200 years of living underneath them in the Constitution, we put a man on the moon. We went from the ox and the cart and the spinning wheel that basically broad swath of humanity had used for 5,000 years previously. We literally took a 5,000 year leap to the moon under these principles. Thomas Jefferson who wrote in the Declaration of Independence and pulled these like eight or nine ancient principles. And the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence said these principles would be eternal, meaning that we would use these governing principles on into some sort of millennial reign. So I hope tonight everyone has their student manual. That's the best manual or the book, The 5,000 Year Leap. I hope you've now gotten the bookmarks with the 28 principles on the back and you are putting them in your cars and your purses and you're starting to memorize. Al, if we could see um, that slide of the foundation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Jalene, before, before I put the slides up, one thing you talked about in terms of the transformative nature of teaching these principles in our home, when our kids become adults, we have we have some really thorough, cool, in-depth conversations about because our kids are, because they know these principles, they are up on current events. So we talk about current events. We talk about issues of the day. And it just, it, when we get together, it's a lot of fun. We're just not talking about fluffy things. Yeah. The kids do like to talk about what's going on in the world. And some of that is even this morning in our family devotional, I hold up the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and we read the headlines. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting, we, we have for, for many years in our family devotional got the kids familiar with what the world is talking about. And is it consistent with what our founding fathers, uh, you, you know, petitioned us and, and um, promulgated. And so it, it you lay the, the seed within their hearts of wanting to be able to discuss current events instead of just, you know, zoning out. And so anyways, okay, so we're on, we're going to discuss the fifth, sixth, and seventh principle today. The fifth principle, are we ready? Oh, yeah. but before we do, let's just review um, the four, and I call them the foundational principles that, look, you know, the best way to have strong government and good relationships with others is to have our laws based on natural law, which is godly law, and that... Um, you know, the best way to maintain this kind of government is for people to be virtuous and morally strong, all right? And how do you, what helps the people stay morally strong and virtuous is to elect, you know, good leaders, morally stable leaders. And without religion, this type of government cannot be maintained, all right? So there's a direct tie to God and religion producing the kind of people that can maintain this government by the voice of the people. These are foundational principles, all right? And so it leads us to the fifth principle where our founders knew uh, that the fifth principle says, all things were created by God. Therefore, upon him 
Are all mankind equally dependent and to him they are equally responsible? Uh, let's go to that um, slide um, of the five principles of sound religion before we get into the fifth principle. Remember, th these were the, the principles that our founders wanted taught in the school systems, not only knowledge, but morality and religion because that's how they were we were going to maintain this new government that they were going to give us and that that they believe that that we, we should teach that there was a creator and that number two um that there is a, a conduct of right and wrong a moral code and that number three that we were going to be held responsible for the way we treated one another and that we're going to live beyond this beyond this earth there'll be some sort of eternal realm and that we're going to stand to be judged before the supreme being our creator these were the principles they called the universal religion or or american religion of, of sound faiths that they wanted taught imagine if we were teaching this in the school systems today i don't think we'd have some of the problems we're seeing with young people today and so based on that, our, our founders believe that the fifth principle, that all things, because they were created by God, we're all responsible and, and dependent upon him. Now, I, I've taught my kids through the years, well, there will be some people that say, well, I don't believe in God, so I don't have to abide by the Bible. They're not my commandments. I don't even believe he exists. And I would tell my children, that's equivalent to some people saying, well, I don't believe in the law of gravity. I just don't, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't exist. But the minute they step off the cliff, that law, they are going down. And whether they believed in gravity or not, it will be made manifest in their life. Same uh, with saying you don't believe in God. There will come a day where you will stand before your creator, whether you believe him or not. Now, our, our founders vigorously um, affirmed in their writings that the foundation of all reality is in the existence of a creator. He was the designer of all things. We are his design. Where there is a design, there is a designer. And um, they studied the thinking of John Locke. John Locke wrote some very famous essays concerning human understanding. And he was a physician, an English philosopher. He lived from 1632 to 1704. And they um, read his writings on, on this. And John Locke points out that that look, you know, we just didn't come to be, this isn't just some fortuitous circumstance, some big bang explosion that brought us here. He said, just think about it in the mind, for example, we wouldn't accept the proposition that, you know, the a, a watch just appears out of nowhere or even a lead pencil or let alone the intricacies of how ears or eyes or even the simplest little organism in nature can come to be. These are all products of an intelligent design of high precise engineering. And I would tell my children, I think I used this example the other, the other day that look, to say there's no God is like saying that, you know, if there was an explosion in a printer shop, that explosion could somehow miraculously produce a dictionary and that the dictionary could even replicate itself. I mean, how ridiculous is that? And that's kind of the equivalent of saying, you know, there was some sort of explosion or big bang or just uh, evolution of, of things uh, throughout history. John Locke, uh, to John Locke, an atheist was one who was just, he called him irrational and out of touch with reality. 
And he insisted, it's just a, a matter of thinking about it. He insisted everyone can know there is a divine creator. You just have to think about it. And uh, he said, look, a something, a, a nothing can't create a something. And we are a something, all right? I like his idea that, you know, the best way to get to know God is um, he says the creator must be a cognitive reasoning thinking person because we are that kind of person uh, kind of like we're created in the image of god in the very first book in genesis Locke said a non-cognitive being like a rock cannot produce a cognitive being so you know he said you can you can know god you can know the divine creator has compassion or a sense of humor or he's a able to love he has these sublime qualities because man has that all right i think that's beautiful how he he puts this and and this was a man that our founder studied and once again he just felt john locke did that an atheist has failed to apply his divine capacity for reason and observation when it comes to you know not believing in um uh, a divine creator and um the founders also studied a man by the name of John or of, um, William Blackstone. Now, Blackstone lived from 1723 to 1780, and he uh, talks a lot about natural law and the laws of nature, nature and that these laws constituted, a, there was a moral code inherently embedded in natural law. And of course, we know that's, you know, the number two uh, point of sound religion that Benjamin Franklin and our founders put forth. So Blackstone, uh, they considered him an authority on natural law, and he established the first law classes in Oxford in 1753. And his lectures on English law were just as widely read in America as they were in England at the time. And he talks about this law of nature and nature's God and uh, that he said, the will of God, which is expressed in the orderly arrangement of the universe is called the nature of law. And there are laws for human nature that have been revealed by God. And, and that uh, we'll talk more about this in principle nine. And so, no, the founders did not believe that God was um, some mysterious being or he was distant or disinterested or like modern deists will claim that our founders were, were deists, particularly the late, they like to say Thomas Jefferson was a deist, meaning, well, yeah, maybe God did create us, but then he went away. And our founders uh, uh, felt just the opposite of that, that not only was the creator intelligent and benevolent, but he was very anxious and able uh, to respond to his children's petitions. And we saw these requests of, for fasting and prayer, they were commonplace in the early history of America, where most of our founders petitioned God in fervent prayer, both publicly and privately. And, and we learn a lot about this in the real George Washington is oftentimes he would have his troops after a particularly difficult battle or a victory. The next day, they would be in the churches praying and fasting in, in gratitude uh, for, for this. And also Thomas Jefferson has written a beautiful book called the Jefferson Bible. And he would keep um, uh, parts of the words of Christ 
closest to his heart in his front coat pocket. And he said in his, in his Bible that it was the last thing he read every night. So you just need to read the original writings of these men to know how they felt about God. Okay, Al, and I have invited George Washington. He's behind me tonight because Al is going to be talking a little bit about George Washington. Go ahead. Good. Thank you, sweetheart. Thank you so much. You, you do such a wonderful job. Your optimism is contagious. So thank you. So George Washington, 67 times wrote to the Continental Congress that it had it not been for the hand of the Almighty or divine providence, the armies would have perished. So George Washington took his faith and his religion very seriously. In fact, he encouraged his officers and men to go to church. He removed all types of debauchery from the campsites because he wanted the troops and he wanted his army to be worthy of God's hands and blessings as they went to war because he knew they were undermanned, outsized, and out-experienced. So in order for America to prevail, we had to have God's hand be involved. And that that's kind of a, a lesson for us in life. We do all that we can. We put ourselves in a position where the Lord can use us and his grace is sufficient. He fills out the wh whatever we have left. He, he, takes, he takes up the slack. So in this quote here, it says, no people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. So because of that, the founders took very seriously this motto, in God we trust, and that's why it's on the back of our money. The nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and as Julene talked about beautifully last week, when George Washington was inaugurated, they took a stroll down to St. Paul's Church, and that's when they establish a covenant with God. And if you want to read some of the details of what's in that covenant, what some of the promises that Heavenly Father has blessed us, if we are do his will, it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Deuteronomy chapter 30, and God we trust. So let's talk about the sixth principle, principle that all men are created equal. The founders were very serious about this statement. And when they meant all men, they meant all men. And I didn't used to think that. In fact, back when, before I, my, I was enlightened, before I did my own personal study, before I found the Thomas Jefferson Center for Constitutional Studies, I and, and having Julene teach us in our home with regard to the 5,000-year leap, I used to think July 4th, Independence Day, was not for me because my people were in bondage. But those are back in the days when I was a dummy. And, and decided to go about and do my own research and found that the, the founders were very serious about this notion of all men are created equal. In fact, if you read the Constitution, you will never see the word slave or slavery in the document. It's not found in the Constitution. James Madison said, we thought it to be wrong to admit in the Constitution the idea that there could be property and men. And as we've talked about before, if they can keep slavery contained in the South, and in 20 years, give them an opportunity to phase it out, that it would eventually die away. 
So we're created equal, but no two human beings are exactly alike. Thank goodness. We are all different. We all have different desires. We have different skill sets, different talents that the Lord has blessed us with. And so we have different outcomes. And the founders knew that. There's three ways that all men are created equal. One is we're treated as equals in the sight of God. We're equal in the sight of the law. Kind of hard to say that in today's world because it seems to be different justice for different classes of people. And then what the founders had envisioned that we'd be equal in the protection of our rights, the protection of our rights. And with that foundation, the founders believe if individuals are determined, they can succeed. If you've got that foundation of equality, then a person can succeed based on their internal desires and what they want out of their life. That's why they wanted government to be limited. They didn't want government to be involved in picking winners and losers. They wanted the individuals to determine and desire the level of education they want to achieve or what kind of job that they want to have to take care of themselves and their families. So let's talk about equality versus equity. The founders distinguish, and this is right from the text, the founders distinguish between equal rights and other areas where equality is impossible. They recognize that society should seek to provide equal opportunity, but not expect equal results. Provide equal freedom, but not expect equal capacity because we're all different. We're all unique. We all move to the beat of our own drums. We provide equal rights, but not equal possessions. Provide equal protection, but not equal status. And provide equal educational opportunities, but not equal grades. That's the difference between equality versus equity. Today, equity has taken on a new name, and equity today means equal outcomes. And that's not what God intended, and that's not what the founders intended. When you talk about equal outcomes, then you get into the notion of socialism, fascism, and communism, which is counter to what the founders had envisioned. So we are a nation of immigrants. And I'm sure we're all familiar with that term that we are a melting pot of different ethnic backgrounds, different colors, shapes, sizes, but that's not where our strength is. Our strength is in our shared values, our shared values and some of the ideals upon which the nation was founded. These are some of our shared values, faith, family, resilience, innovation, hard work, determination, perseverance, and charity. Those are the things that created this nation of immigrants coming together. They had those shared values in common, and so they were able to build a nation together based on those principles. Unfortunately, we've got these principles that are now overtaking our schools. They're overtaking what we hear in the media. We hear words like oppressed. We hear words like oppressor, victim. Christian nationalism is as if that's a bad thing to believe in, in Jesus Christ and to have faith in your country. We've lowered the standards. Going back to the notion of this whole thing of equity. Things have become anti-God. We, 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 people who are faithful are being canceled. We all experience these things. 
the unalienable wrongs. Those are in the Bible. Those are the thou shalt nots. And then there are the unalienable rights or the unable, unable, and unalienable rights. Those are the rights that the Lord gives us so that we can keep the commandments. And we know about the first 10 commandments, one of which is thou shalt not kill. However, the Lord gives us the right to defend ourselves. There's another commandment that's found in the book of Malachi regarding tithing. The Lord commands us to pay tithing, pay, commands us to pay 10% of our increase. But he also gives us a right to keep that commandment by giving us the right to choose what level of education we're going to desire, choose our profession that will enable us to take care of ourselves and pay our tithing. So as indicated before, we are a nation of immigrants. Unfortunately, through our history, because we are human, we've not treated all of our immigrants with equal rights. We, we've seen what this nation has, has treated and done to the Native Americans or the, the Japanese Americans and, of course, Black Americans. We, we're all familiar with the history. There's no denying those are facts. The summer of 2020 changed everything with regard to the values upon which this nation was founded upon, and they have come under attack because there are some who are deliberately using the experience of Black Americans and the nation history through slavery and Jim Crow to now use that history to show that America is irredeemably racist, therefore evil that the founding documents of this country are racist and that they're not written for everybody. And so you've got people who are deliberately trying to change the country from a nation that was established on Judeo-Christian principles, free market principles, principles of equality, and changing it to something else. And they're using race to do it. And so I want to talk a little bit about the treatment of, uh, of minorities in the country, but I'm gonna highlight some of the good things. Even in the face of slavery and Jim Crow, there are stories and we have a history of uplift, stories of inspiration that are being omitted from the history books, that are being omitted from telling these stories to our children. Because in the face of Jim Crow, in the face of slavery, Black individuals in America have had success, have overcome things. Even when civil and during the civil rights movement, when we talk about discrimination and Jim Crow that was actually enshrined, written in the code, there were victories that were possible. You look at the, the top left there, Aunt Jemima. Actually, that's a real person. Her name is Nancy Green. She was one of 25 to 30 ex-slaves who died as millionaires. She was the face of Aunt Jemima. She was a marketing genius and she died a millionaire. And what have we done to her after the year of George Floyd in 2021 and 2022? Completely removed her from the box. We just wiped her from history when we should be celebrating what, what she's done. To the right of, of her is Elijah McCoy. Elijah McCoy, was born in 18, 1844 in Canada. His family were slaves. They escaped to Canada 
That's where he was born in 1844, lived to 1929, came back to America with, with a college-educated degree that he got from Canada and, and got a job on the railroad, a very nasty job as he had to go under the train and lubricate all of the wheels so that the train could take off. You had to stop the train to lubricate the wheels. So Elijah McCoy, because he was a degree individual, came up with an invention. He actually had three inventions, and one of which allowed the train to be lubricated while it was moving. And then several years after that, individuals tried to copy what Elijah McCoy did and create these knockoffs. And the individuals who would buy those knockoffs said, wait a minute, we don't want your knockoff. We want the real McCoy. That's where that term real McCoy comes from. It comes from Elijah McCoy. In the top right there, Robert Smalls. Robert Smalls was born a slave, uh, worked on the coast and fishing vessels. So he knew how to operate ships and, and, and ships and things of that, of that nature. And Robert Smalls escaped as he commandeered a Confederate ship, navigated it to the North, knew all the hand signals, put the hat onto the captain, was able to take him and five other individuals to the North, turn the ship over to the Union Army, Abraham Lincoln gave him a reward for his heroism. Mr. Smalls turned that, that money that he made after the Civil War into his own thriving business, became a millionaire, served in the Congress as a congressman from South Carolina, went back and brought the plantation, bought the plantation that he was a slave on and actually had compassion on the family, the widow of his slave master because she was destitute, had nowhere to go. He allowed her to stay on the plantation and live out the remaining years of her life. So if somebody can show that kind of compassion, certainly we can show compassion today, even in the face of some circumstances that aren't favorable to us. But these are the vic victories that are possible. These are the untold stories. I would encourage you to get the book in the lower right by Booker T. Washington. It's called Up From Slavery. It's an incredible story. On the left is Bob Woodson. He's still alive. He's 86 years old. He is transforming communities from the inside out. I'm very fortunate to serve on his board. And he focuses on the good. And so here's Black achievement in the face of op opposition. One of the things that we don't talk about in history today is that the marriage rate among Black Americans was around 85% just after the Civil War up until the 1960s, even during the Depression, when the unemployment rate among Blacks was 40%, the marriage rate was the highest. There was a mom and a dad and a home together. There was no gunfire in these communities, no shooting of guns. Grand Grandparents could walk in their neighborhoods and not be fearful of their grandchildren robbing them or harassing them. After the Civil War, only 10% of the slaves could read and write. By 1910, that number went to two-thirds. The affirmation book, Booker T. Washington, teamed up with a Jewish benefactor, Ju Julius Rosenwald, who was the CEO of Sears, and they established 5,000 schools. Julius Rosenwald committed $4 million of his money 
and Blacks in those communities raised an additional $4.8 million, and they put these schools together and closed the education gap between Southern Blacks and Southern Whites. So when Blacks weren't allowed, were not allowed to participate in the economy because of Jim Crow laws, guess what? They formed their own businesses. They formed their own hotels, insurance companies, churches, dental schools, medical schools. And in fact, by the mid 20th century, $700 million worth of assets. So the reason that I'm highlighting these stories is, so we have them in our back pocket when we counter this notion of racism. Because back in those days, racism and discrimination was enshrined in the code. But when whites were at their worst, blacks were at their best. And so we wanna highlight these things. Here, here's a modern day example, Piney Wood School, established by a gentleman by the name of Lawrence Jones in 1909. He started the school, he was very well educated and the literacy, the illiteracy rate in Piney Woods, Mississippi, it's about an hour outside of Jackson was about 80%. So he decided to establish a school and it started with one student sitting on a felled tree on a log and he taught this young man how to read. And then soon after, the next day and the next day, the kid brought his friends, they bought their friends, and he started a school, and it's still there. And it's a school designed to go get the least of these from the cities of Baltimore, Chicago, Detroit, and take them off the streets and send them down to Piney Woods. It's, it's a 115-year-old Christian boarding school. They start each day with a morning devotional and they teach resilience. They teach these kids resilience. 96% of the kids that go to this school go on to college or post-secondary education. It's a real success story. In fact, the person who runs it now was a student there, went, to, uh, went on to Harvard, got his law degree, practiced law, was in the uh, Obama administration, and now has been at Piney Woods running that school for the last nine years. Incredible story. And what are the ingredients to success? How were Black families able to achieve success? Two important things, family and faith, faith and family. This picture of, of Jesus on the right was in every Black home that I went into when I was growing up. This was the, the picture. And I showed this to Jelaine last night. And she's like, wait a minute, we had that picture in our house too. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's supposed to be the Black Jesus. That's supposed to be our Jesus, not yours. But she, in other words, they, they won't let us have anything, Julini. You even took that from us. But anyway, faith. Never, you know, that, that Jesus was in our home growing up, but I never thought he was black. I think that's so interesting that. No, no, he's white, but that was, that was the, what was in black homes. This, this <laughs> Jesus right. I actually found it on the internet, but <laughs> the ingredients to success was a mom and a dad in the home. So if you think about how systemic it was in terms of anti-Black racism, the thing that enabled Black people to achieve success based on what we just talked about was the family. So guess what? We got to pivot, the adversary says. We have to pivot. And maybe, maybe it's time to go after the family. So there's the Moynihan Report. So right after the Civil Rights Movement, Civil Rights Voting Act, Voting Rights Act was signed in 1965. And there was Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was at the Department of Labor. 
did a report entitled The Negro Family, A Case for National Action. And it was, it was done. Here, Blacks are achieving some equality through the Civil Rights Act, the Civil Rights Movement. So the question is, what's next? What do we do next? This was the conclusion that the report concluded that the structure of the family in bold there is capable of perpetuating itself without assistance from the white world. At the heart of the deterioration of the fabric of Negro society is the deterioration of the Negro family. So the report argued that the matriarchal structure of Black culture weakened the ability of Black men to function as authority figures. So what came out of the report was we need to invest in the Black family. We need to invest in the Black man. We need to have a mom and a dad in the home. That's what the report. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan got crushed for this report. He was called racist. Every name that you can think of, he was vilified for coming out with this report. However, and at the same time, actually a few years before that, you had two social scientists from the University of Columbia, from Columbia University. Their names were Richard Cloward and Francis Piven. And they came up with a political strategy to overload the American public welfare system to the point it creates a crisis and bankrupts the nation, leaving the country no choice but to adopt socialistic, communistic agenda. Meaning, if you overwhelm the system with welfare, if you can sign up a bunch of people and, and give them welfare, it'll eventually crash the system so that then it's going to be easy to bring socialism and communism into the fold. And this was their idea back in the early 1960s. And so here you've got Lyndon Johnson, who's president at the time. And he has a choice to make. Is he going to move forward with what's in the, the Moynihan report, investing in the Black family? Or is he going to go down the path of Cloward and Piven? Think about it. 1965 Voting Rights Act was passed. The Democrats in the South opposed it. When Lyndon Johnson, the Democrat from Texas, signed that bill on the law, he lost the South for the Democratic Party. And so what do they do? We've got, a, we have to create a new constituency. So guess where Johnson went? He went to the war on poverty. $22 trillion from the 1960s to now have been spent on the war on poverty. Of that, 22 trillion, 70% went to servicing the individuals who provided the service and the bureaucracy instead of getting to the, to the folks that needed on the ground, the recipients. It was, the question was, and Bob Woodson is so great at talking about this. He says, which problems are fundable, not which problems are solvable. So that was the premise behind moving forward in the war on poverty. What can we fund as opposed to what can we solve? And so here are the results of the war on poverty. Government replaced God. We've been able to convince a group of people that the very thing that provided deliverance, faith and family, were now not deemed as solutions, that it's about political power. It's about the government. It's about keeping, it's about government replacing God. 
Government became before God. So the results, we remove man from the home. No man, no authority, no authority figure leads to chaos, which creates high crime, drugs, brokenness. The matriarchy of single mothers. I don't know any society in, in, in history, in the history of the world that has been built on just single moms. Now we have single moms, but there's men that rise up and provide as character coaches and and give that moral guidance to, to young men. We're not we're not seeing that today. We've got gang violence in these towns. We've got an increase in poverty. Barack Obama said if if you if you can graduate from high school, if you can stay out of trouble, if you can get married before you have kids, you will likely not be in poverty. You'll be successful in life if you can do those things. And then we've got out of wedlock births. 70% of black kids that come to the world today come to a home where there's not a mom and a dad. So, we, so the goal now today is let's make everything about race. And when we do that, real problems do not get addressed because it's a distraction. It's a deterrent from the real problems we just highlighted in the previous slide when all we talk about is race. We've got people who are doing whatever they can to be avoid being called a racist. If you're white and if you're if you're a conservative black or you talk about things where we got to have dads in the home like a Larry Elder, then you're called a sellout or the or the black face of white supremacy. And it, and those individuals are being canceled. We're being canceled the, the media, social media. People are fearing losing their place of employment, their jobs, their careers, and so forth, because we make everything about race. I'm watching ESPN. They weave in race everywhere. We had a son go to school and public school at, at Bethesda Chevy Chase High School. They wove in race even in the gym class. That's all they talk about. Everything is made about race. So then that opens the door to lead to the acceptance of other lies, because if you accept that lie, then you got to go and take the lies that go on top of that. You've got to accept the LGBT community and 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 some of their some of their agenda, because you don't want to be called homophobic. You don't want to be called a racist. So then you 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 just water things down and accept those lies. And so that leads us down a pathway of division, reverse racism, where it's okay to be mean to white people for blacks to do that. It, it, there's a watered down meritocracy where we are looking for equity again. We create a sense of entitlement where I feel like I'm owed something. And we've got, we've got the elites who want absolution for crimes they didn't commit. And we have other elites who want sympathy for injuries that they didn't even endure. And that's part of it, because in these communities where Bob Woodson works, I'm, I'm on his board. These young people that we're working with they have X in front of their name. They're not MBAs, PhDs. Race is at the bottom of the list in terms of what they're concerned about. When we get them together and they've got individuals who've got drug problems, you're not a white junkie, you're not a brown junkie, you're not a red junkie, you're just a junkie. And you're looking for redemption from your brokenness. And race is not even on the table. And these young people, there's no confusion about their pronouns. They're just trying to survive. So how do we counter that narrative? How do we how do we fight back? How do we be happy warriors? 
we recognize that the real problem, first of all, in America is not race. It's a moral and spiritual free fall. That's where we are failing. The issue is not race. The problem in this country is not race, but grace. We are judging people. We're holding people to standards. We're not even living ourselves. We People say things we don't like. We automatically cancel them. We make everything about race. We need to be happy warriors. We need to push back with kindness, but with firmness. Avoid engagement and debate and argument. We must demonstrate that the values of the founders have the consequence of improving the quality of life for the people. Experience always trumps an argument. We don't counter rhetoric with rhetoric. We focus on results. That's where our focus is. We go to the school board meetings. We have to do those things. Those are temporary things that we do. We need to look for permanent solutions and they are embedded in the principles that we're learning, that we're learning each and every week when we come to this class and read the 5,000 year lead and hopefully take the Making of America seminars. Because if it was systematically unraveled, that means it can be systematically put back together. Experience always trumps an argument or any type of rhetoric. We're focused on results. Our shared American history is replete with stories of resilience and redemption. It's so important that we teach our kids these stories. We lived in Utah for six years and our kids would go to school and they would have some un unsensitive things said to them. They weren't meant to be in no malice towards kids, but they just weren't used to be around brown kids. And they would say things that weren't uh, conducive to our children being happy sometimes. I mean, they'd come home and they'd be upset. And then we would sit down, we would open up the book and tell them the story of Ruby Bridges. New Orleans, integrating schools in the late 1950s. She went to a, this little girl, six or seven years old, went to an all-white school. If Ruby Bridges can do that, you can handle going to school here in Lehigh, Utah. Learn the principles and values upon which this nation was founded. It is those principles that demonstrate that the values of the founders have the consequence of improving the quality of life for the people. So let's not get caught up in the hype. Let's, let's study our history. Let's study these principles and let's put a smile on our face, take God with us, and let's be happy warriors in this fight. Okay, Julene, back to you. Oh, I am so blessed to have the father of my children be you. You <laughs> oh, those stories to our kids through the years and because of that they haven't leaned into kind of that black lives narrative that they are victims and that they should be entitled to special uh, uh reparations or you know those kind of things and when you teach your children that that we're all equal in the sight of god and we're equal in the sight of the law and and the protection of uh, our rights that's all they need then to to take the opportunities that come before them and not you know uh, focus on injuries of the past but how they can be agents of uplift and how they can do good knowing that uh, they're equal in those areas and so this principle number seven thank you so much sweetie that was really fascinating and coming from you it's really hard to dispute it right because that's a message that we don't hear very much 
or our children are certainly not taught the school system. So we have to know these stories of, of uplift. And um, so this seventh principle is a notion that, and one that I use all the time when I'm speaking to people, because nowadays we think that the government uh, should should take care of us and should provide programs for us. And we saw it, especially during COVID, everyone looked to the government uh, to know if they should hop or if they should leave their house or you know how to school their children. So our founders knew that the proper role of government was to protect equal rights. Uh, you know, this idea that we're all equal in the sight of God and the sight of the law and protection of these inalienable God-given rights. But the government was not to provide equal things or equal outcomes or equal results that we've kind of fallen in love with in this day and age. Uh, the founders, uh, you know, uh, during their time, it was kind of popular, that notion that the government should take from the haves and give to the have-nots. But they, the founders, perceived that this proposition was, was false and that they recognized that people can't delegate to the government the power to do anything except that they have that lawful right to do it themselves. For example, um, every person we know is entitled to the protection of his life and property. Therefore, it's legitimate then to delegate to the government the task of maybe setting up police force to protect the lives and property of all people. But suppose you lived in a neighborhood where your neighbor has two cars on one side and then on the other side, the neighbor has no cars. And the, you, you know there was a neighbor who saw this and in his spirit of benevolence, he goes to the house with two cars and he takes one of the cars and uh, generously gives it to the neighbor with no cars. Well, obviously that neighbor would be arrested for car theft because he was violating the natural rights of the more prosperous neighbor. So, you know, of course, the two car neighbor could donate the one car to the poor neighbor if he liked, but that would be his decision and not the prerogative of the kind hearted neighbor who wanted to play Robin Hood. So sometimes the founders were, uh, you know, were insightful enough to know that it, will, it might be tempting for governments to commit legal crimes. So suppose that kind hearted neighbor went to the mayor of your town and to the city council to force the, the neighbor with two cars to give one of them to his pedestrian neighbor. Now, does it make it more legitimate? Obviously, this makes it even worse, it says here in, the, in our manual, because if the mayor and the city council do it in the name of the law, the man who has lost his car not only has lost his rights to his property, but he's even lost uh, the right to appeal. Uh, to help protect his property. So the American founders recognize that the moment that the government becomes authorized to start leveling uh, the field, the material possessions of the rich in order to have equal distribution of goods, the government therefore now has been given the power to deprive people of their equal rights to enjoy their lives, liberty, and property. Because what we're saying is some people's possessions and property are less sacred than others that some people like it's you shouldn't be that rich so we're going to take more from you and we saw that begin to happen in 1913 when the 16th amendment was passed and they started to at, at that point everyone had been taxed equally that's what our founders wanted but in 1916 or 13 with the 16th amendment we began to see a graduated income where certain people's incomes were taxed more than others 
hence making their property less sacred and their rights uh, less less protected. Okay, Al, take it away from there. Okay, great. Thanks, Jelini. All right, so the founders made communism, fascism, and socialism unconstitutional. So if you've got one person or a few people making decisions for the mass of the people, that's that's that moves us closer to tyranny. And so the founders saw that as something that we can we would label as unconstitutional. Remember, it's all about people's law. It's about finding the median between tyranny on one extreme and anarchy on the other. And the balance center is in the heart of people's law. And so just as Samuel Adams said, he said the utopian schemes of leveling or redistribution of the wealth and a community of goods where there's a central ownership of all the means of production and distribution are as visionary and impractical as those which vest all property in the crown. Basically what he's saying is we just fought our way away from England. That's exactly those ideas are arbitrary because the government is picking winners and losers. They're despotic and in our government, unconstitutional. So let's talk about the principle of stewardship, caring for the poor and needy. So the giver voluntarily gives what they have to the poor and they do it with love. The poor receives it in that spirit of love. They're not expecting it and they receive it. And so when you've got those two competing interests, the giver and the receiver, but it's done voluntarily and it's done with love, God can get involved in that track, that transaction. There is a blessing that ensues. And then the person who receives it now wants to not only help themselves, but then help others. So let's take away the principle of stewardship and let's forcibly take from those that have you create frustration, you create anger, and then you give it to someone who feel who accepts it without knowing the person who gave it, but accepts it, and they see it as an entitlement, that they're owed to it. And in that transaction, there's no God, there's no blessing. And, and Ben Franklin talked about that extensively. In fact, he says we need to go with calculated compassion. Do not help the needy completely, merely help them to help themselves. Give the poor the satisfaction of earned achievement instead of rewarding them without achievement. Allow the poor to climb the appreciation ladder from tents to cabins to cottages, cottages to comfortable homes. Ben Franklin knows this firsthand because he was a have-not. Number four, where emergency help is provided, do not prolong to the point where it becomes habitual. And then five, strictly enforce the scale of fixed responsibility, where the federal government is not even supposed to be involved in welfare, not even supposed to be involved. It's supposed to be done at the local level, which makes common sense because at the local level, you can you know who these people are and you can decide and determine these four previous things that Franklin talks about. Sitting on in the state legislature, bringing up ideas and suggestions. Why don't we provide a work requirement? Why don't we incentivize a couple to stay married as opposed to you've got a poor couple one's a janitor the other one's a seamstress they're having they fall on hard times they go to the welfare office 
sorry, there's nothing for you. But if you were single, if you didn't have a man in a home, then we can provide something for you. Why can't we provide incentives for people to stay together? And so this is what Franklin is talking about with calculated compassion. Okay, Jolene, thank you. Okay, I love the principles tonight that, that first of all, we're all God's children, <laughs> that we are a something and nothing can produce a something, that we are created in God's image and therefore we're dependent upon him. We're responsible to him. And these are self-evident truths, our founders and the great thinkers from Cicero in 106 BC to John Locke to William Blackstone, and that we're equal in the sight of God, that he loves us unfailingly. But in my Bible that uh, I was studying today, I looked up the word unconditional in King James Version. There's unconditional is not mentioned in scripture where so much of uh, today's thinking is, well, love is love, and we just need to love everybody. We can't judge anyone. Uh, we just need to love each other unconditionally. And, and that's not what God said. In Exodus uh, uh, 19, chapter 19, verse 12, God talks about, and thou shalt set bounds unto the people around about. He has set conditions and expectations. God has given us, he was referring when Moses went up the mount to bring down the Ten Commandments. He gave instructions. He set bounds for the Israelites there, and he gave conditions and expectations so they could become more than they were. He gives, uh, and and we do that through hard work and compassion and frugality and 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 through these kind of traits and staying within the bounds that God has set. This is how we begin to prosper and how we are happy. Our creator knows how best to make his children happy. I, I think of uh, that same goes for marriage. Al and I have been married, what, almost 31 years, honey? We're coming up on our anniversary in a few weeks. But, uh, you know, I love Al more now after 31 years than I did in the beginning. And I was really in love with you back then, sweetheart. But, mm -hmm. you know, being married to each other for 31 years, we have had expectations for each other and the way I uh, live and the way you live, the way we live together, honor uh, certain boundaries that we've agreed to live within. And because of this, we've enjoyed blessings of this privileged relationship, if you will, called a marriage. So these bounds, these commandments, these laws are the way that we shape relationships on earth. It's the way we shape our relationship with God in marriage, uh, the way we shape even relationships with neighbors and, and with government. When we accept the laws, these natural laws, these boundaries, we will have greater privilege and access to the blessings of these relationships. And when we live without any bounds, which is seeming to become more of the norm in society nowadays when anything goes when love is love and there's no standard standards or you know no rights or wrongs then we actually corrupt ourselves we corrupt marriages we corrupt families become corrupt our communities and even our nations become corrupt when we live outside of the bounds that god has set so satan has really has a counterfeit to god's plan and it's this notion that, you know, we all need to be equal. And in order to be equal, we all need to, you know, have a, a certain sense of entitlement or the government owes me something or the government should take care of us. And that is 
what is known as counterproductive compassion. That is Satan's counterfeit to God's plan of calculated compassion that Al uh, spelled out, that uh, Benjamin Franklin talks about, where we all have equal opportunity to succeed, to prosper, and to lift ourselves up. Those beautiful stories of resilience of uh, Black citizens in the early history of our country. I love that we need that. That's what we need to be focusing on, and and you know when through our hard work and efforts you know, we are blessed and we prosper, then we feel those blessings of heaven. And it compels us to want to look around and help people that aren't maybe doing so well. And because God has been so good to us, we then want to go on our own volition and help the poor and the needy. These are beautiful principles of liberty and freedom and agency, the right to buy, to try, to sell and to fail these free markets where we're responsible for our own actions. We're accountable to our creator. This is the self-evident truth of the supreme being's natural law that our founding fathers understood so well. So I'd really like to admonish you to go back and read principles five, six, and seven. You can see as you commit these principles to memory, they rise up. And when you begin to speak them in conversation, you will speak with greater authority and strength because these principles transcend parties and politics because they're based on truth. So go back and reread this within the next 48 hours. Now, next week, we're going to discuss principles eight, nine and 10. I think every week I say, oh, I love these principles, but I, I really love these principles coming up as well, because it talks about, you know, all men are endowed with inalienable rights from God. And to protect these inalienable rights from God, principle nine says God has revealed certain divine law, right? And then the God-given right in number 10 uh, to govern is vested in the sovereign authority of the whole people. These are our, our principles that our founders knew and understood when they formed this country and, and in which we had our greatest success when we lived under these true principles, where in the first hundred years of living under these principles, we only had 6% of the world's uh, population, but we're producing over 50% of the world's wealth, and we're not doing so well anymore because we veered away from these principles. So we're humming along. We'll study 8, 9, and 10 next week. And so with that, that concludes our lesson for this week. If you...